Greetings, people of Earth. You have stumbled upon Voluntucky, the podcast that is all about creating a voluntarist world in Kentucky. And when I say Kentucky, I am referring to the geographic location, not the boundaries and territory of a particular set of thugs. Podcasts with a libertarian slash anarcho-capitalist perspective are already very different from other podcasts, but this one will be different even among them, because I am not here as a commercial for voluntarism. I am not here to change your mind or to convince you that voluntarism is the way to go. I am here to speak to those who already understand this. Welcome to episode 5, Defining the Nap. The purpose of today's show is inventory. There may have been some folks who have wound up in the Voluntucky net that don't belong here, so today will be about weeding out those who may have similar beliefs but are not ultimately Voluntucky material. There may be a slim chance that those who do not have the right stuff will become that person who does, but this show is not, nor will it ever be, about changing your mind, so no pressure on that front. Having said that, good luck. I hope you're here at the end. If not, thank you for your listenership thus far, but I'm guessing that at the end of this episode, you will self-dismiss. And if you think I'm sounding a little too cocky right now, stick around. You will hear a decent amount of humility very soon. As I've covered in the past, when the non-aggression principle is described to most people, they will agree with it. But does that alone qualify them as voluntarists? Of course not. Because when you start showing them all the ways that the NAP is systemically violated, then they almost invariably begin telling you about all the exceptions to the non-aggression principle. You become a voluntarist when you fully wrap your head around the fact that there are no exceptions. But even once we realize there are no exceptions, we still have our built-in indoctrination that causes us to do all kinds of mental gymnastics to avoid associating the United States brand with tyranny. We tell ourselves that the actions of police and military are solely for the purpose of preventing property violations. So police and military should be supported. And when story after story comes out about clear and obvious NAP violations by police and military, we throw up the few bad apples or just doing their jobs arguments. It's only after much focus on the reasons for the behaviors of police and military that we eventually land at the understanding that the violation of the non-aggression principle is the status quo and is fundamentally ingrained in the U.S. brand. It's then that we understand the Lysander Spooner quote, whether the Constitution really be one thing or another, this much is certain, that it is either authorize such a government as we have had or it has been powerless to prevent it. In either case, it is unfit to exist. As always, this show is directed toward those who already consider themselves voluntarists. But while all voluntarists agree with the non-aggression principle, there is much debate among us as to how that principle may be applied. We have people calling themselves voluntarists who believe it's perfectly fine to throw people out of helicopters for holding different beliefs than them. While I realize that the whole thing about physical removal and throwing people out of helicopters is largely tongue-in-cheek, there are those who truly believe these methods would be acceptable. 
This is the same crowd who I see routinely supporting the lesser of two evils in political races and talking about returning to the Constitution. These people are not voluntarists as I would define them. And when they call themselves voluntarists, I am very quick to tell them that they have mispronounced the word Republican. The ideas of the Pinochet crowd are still rooted in democracy and the belief in the validity of mob rule, and for that reason, I will not be associated with them. To a lesser extent, I also see some self-described voluntarists who seem to be more left-leaning and focused on social responsibility. This is a perfectly acceptable position for voluntarists to hold as long as they understand that their power to create this world is limited to their ability to articulate their positions well enough to convince others to join them voluntarily. Those who are willing to go beyond trying to convince others and are willing to use physical force themselves or by proxy to remake the world to their liking don't usually call themselves voluntarists but are quite fond of the title of anarchists. And when they describe themselves as anarchists, I am very quick to tell them that they have mispronounced the word communist. Mainstream media is more than willing to attribute the title of anarchist to these people so as to demonize the term. And they have been quite successful in implanting that idea in the minds of the average person, which is why most voluntarists have abandoned the term anarchist altogether even though the true meaning of the word accurately describes us and is the polar opposite of everything they stand for. I don't spend much time fighting this because in the end it's just as well. The word anarchy defines us by the things we are against and I'd rather use the term voluntarists anyway because it defines us by the things that we are for. I describe myself as a voluntarist slash anarcho-capitalist mainly to differentiate myself from what most people think of when they hear the term anarchist. But I see laissez-faire capitalism as being synonymous with anarchy and voluntarism. And if the true definition of anarchy were understood by the bulk of humanity, then the capitalism part of anarcho-capitalism would just be redundant. I've lost some good friends over these arguments. And if I cared about being popular, then I would not bother even arguing the points. But when it comes to populating the Voluntucky community, I cannot expect to be successful if I am willing to sacrifice quality of membership in exchange for quantity of membership. These people are more than welcome to go start their own project with like-minded people. But they should be aware that if they ever do begin physically removing people or violating the property of those who were already there before them for any reason, I will be there vocally and physically defending those people whom I adamantly disagree with from those who don't believe they have a right to hold different opinions. I also have a few friends who describe themselves as black flag anarchists because they don't want to be associated with communism or capitalism. But I find that this is largely because they define the word capitalism differently than I do. They see it as top-down control of the elite ultra-rich. If I defined capitalism that way, then I would be against it too. But when I begin talking with these people on a deeper level than superficial definitions, and we delve into talking about free markets that are unregulated by government, it turns out that we are very much on the same page and the disagreement on the definition of capitalism is mostly semantic. Before we can agree on the application of the non-aggression principle, we must first agree on what 
definitely constitutes aggression. We can start with this. Aggression is the use of physical force in any manner other than self-defense. Pretty simple, right? I'm confident in saying that that statement is 100% true. But even still, I have recently come to terms with the fact that while true, it is not a complete description of all of the behaviors that could be considered aggression. And we will talk more about that in a bit. Before we move on to a fuller description of what constitutes aggression, I'd like to talk about some things that many people may think of as aggression, but most certainly are not. And once we have defined those things that are definitely not aggression, as well as those things that definitely are aggression, then we can begin to clarify what may appear from a distance to be a gray area. Among those things that definitely are not aggression, that some may believe are, are things like being offered something you consider to be a raw deal, that you feel forced to take because of a lack of better options. Let's be clear. Any time someone is offering you goods or services in exchange for goods or services, they may very well be exploiting your desperate situation or lack of knowledge, but whether or not you voluntarily accept the deal, their actions cannot be defined as aggression unless they have actually lied to you or intentionally misrepresented what they are offering. Aggression must involve negative negotiations. In short, making an offer that consists of threatening negative action like hurting you or taking property from you unless you comply with demands. Therefore, any clear offer that involves giving something to you is not aggression. Only those offers that involve taking something from you can be aggression. But at what point, if ever, do words count as aggression? This was a topic of much debate last week between myself and some other voluntarists, and I can admit now that my belief at the time was wrong. And I do want to thank them for giving me other ways to see the issue. On the surface, it seemed to me initially that words could never count as aggression. I felt like anytime you feel aggressed against by words, then you are the definition of a snowflake. And I think most of us would agree that in any situation where somebody simply says something that you think is mean and hurts your feelings, that would be true. But what about actual threats of violence? Or even actions such as pointing a weapon at someone and issuing demands to surrender their property? After all, these are just words. And the weapon has not yet made contact with you. At what point do you have the right to use violence to preempt what may be an imminent attack. Now, in these discussions with other voluntarists, my assertion was that while it is certainly wrong to threaten someone with violence in any other manner than self-defense, it is not a violation of the NAP because it is still just words. I even drew out a Venn diagram on a napkin and took a picture of it to illustrate that while everything that violates the NAP is wrong, not everything that is wrong violates the NAP. And I am still debating with myself the extent to which that is true. <laughs> but here's what I had to reconsider and why. I had to concede that if a person who has only threatened violence but has not yet made physical contact, 
if they have not violated the nap, then that would mean that if you used violence against that person to preempt an attack that you felt was imminent, then your actions would violate the nap. But that can't be true because everything that violates the nap is wrong. So your actions to defend yourself couldn't be wrong. Since self-defense is never wrong, then I was wrong. And if I was wrong, then that would mean that the person who only threatened physical violence did indeed violate the non-aggression principle. Rewind that again and listen to it if you need to. I know it's a mouthful. But I still believe that we need clear definitions for what things constitute an imminent attack and therefore justify using violence to prevent them. That line is somewhere between blowing the brains out of every barking chihuahua and kicking an actual mugger in the knee. If we don't have agreement on where that line is, we run the risk of repeating the same mistakes that mankind has always repeated, and eventually we wind up right back at using flying robots to blow up school buses full of third graders on the other side of the planet and claiming it was necessary to protect ourselves. It's a slippery slope unless you put in some solid barricades to prevent slippage, and I will not have this movement repeat those mistakes. To keep that from happening, we need a solid reference point for how to decide the credibility of a threat. The two primary indicators that I have found of whether a threat has credibility and can therefore be acted upon preemptively are ability and history of the person or people using the threat. In terms of ability, if the source of a threat has no means by which to carry out the threat, then that source has no credibility. If a quadriplegic person tells you they're going to beat you to death, you can't shoot them. They have no ability to carry out that threat. In terms of history, many of us get our best examples of the loss of threat credibility from our parents. If a parent is constantly saying that if you don't finish your homework, you can't play video games, but they always end up letting you play the video games anyway, whether or not you finished your homework, then soon their words mean nothing. Their threats have no credibility due to their history. I do believe and often say that there is no such thing as gray, that gray is the illusion created by black and white pixels that only appear gray to those who are either unable or too afraid or too intellectually lazy to do the uncomfortable work of looking close enough to see the individual pixels. Yet, when I was laying out this whole conundrum for my wife the other day, I found myself describing it as the gray area. If you ever want to really dig at someone, just use their own words against them. So, her response to me was, of course, I thought there was no such thing as a gray area. I thought gray is an illusion. Yeah. Ouch. Well, son of a bitch, okay, I guess. Time to go to work. Time to get my hands dirty and figure this thing out. So now I'm left with not just deciding for myself where that line is, but much more importantly, I must also decide how much of that I am willing to dictate to others and make part of the stipulations of joining the Voluntucky community. Any newly discovered definition runs a heavy risk of being found to be wrong in the near future. I have to consider how many things I have been sure of for years on end only to be proven wrong later. And I have to admit that just because I understand that everything is black and white doesn't mean I know which is which. 
It just means I will keep searching until I find it. So since those barricades that will prevent us from again becoming what we hate must be in place, this is what I have decided. Anyone wishing to be part of the community will understand those things that are absolutely clear violations of the NAP. And they will understand that whether or not those behaviors violate the NAP is irrespective of who you are, that there are no special people who get to operate under a different set of rules. In any case where someone who is accused of violating the property of another claims they were acting in self-defense, a jury will be left to decide whether that person was facing a credible threat based on the history and the ability of the person whom they did attack first. Sometimes ability and history are difficult to know. If a stranger that you know nothing about threatens you, then you don't have much to go on. You kind of have to go with your gut. But if your gut is wrong, then you will have, in fact, committed a property violation. The details of every case will be different, and that's why juries are important. So the jury system will decide individual cases of accusations of violations, and the asshole list, as I described in episode 2, will address those behaviors that do not violate the property of others, but do run the risk of causing damage to the property of others. Kind of like the difference between misdemeanors and felonies, but without actual property violations being the systemic response to potential property violations. Maybe after a century or so of trial and error, we could further define those things that are clear violations from those things that are clearly not. But those changes will be cultural, not political or legislative. In the meantime, I'm sure that any misappropriation of penalties that may happen with this system, while each a tragedy, would be extremely rare, much more rare than in the authoritarian world, and would not be enough to destroy the system or prevent future refinement. But I also won't let continuation of the Voluntucky community supersede the central objective of creating an environment that centers on individual property rights. I won't build a bureaucracy. Bureaucracies require individuals in ongoing positions of authority, so there's no way that can happen. So how will the idea of responding to threats with violence apply outside of situations between individuals? How will it apply to the community as a whole and specifically to the way the community will respond to threats before and after reaching the trigger point of having 10,000 members? It is important to keep in mind that just because you have a right to do something doesn't mean that it is smart to do it. You may have every right in the world to try your best to fight off five muggers who have you surrounded. But if you have no reasonable chance of winning, then it would be pretty stupid to not hand over the goods in hopes of them letting you go. It is easy to say, give me liberty or give me death, when the real potential of death is not staring you in the face. But that's how thugs always work. That's how tyranny always works. They exploit our self-preservation instinct. They know that the principle of self-preservation that guides us at the most primal level will usually override our principle of liberty and self-ownership. In those moments, it is almost an involuntary reaction to just accept this brief moment of violation in exchange for longer-term survival. It is that primal instinct that tyrants use against us, and nothing ever changes about the way the world works until there are a sufficient number of people willing to override that self-preservation instinct. 
this is difficult, maybe even impossible, but it becomes much less difficult and much more possible when a real chance exists of surviving the situation with your liberty intact. When that is the case, it is much easier to navigate the, the dichotomy of choosing to do what is right or choosing to do what is smart. Because if you can win, then doing what is right is doing what is smart. It still requires bravery. There's no guarantee of winning. But we don't need a guarantee. The deeper your love for liberty, the less you need that guarantee to override the self-preservation instinct. And that glimmer of hope, that barely visible light at the end of the tunnel will become more bright and more visible each time Voluntucky gains a new member who is willing to stand behind his neighbor and beside his neighbor and help him defend himself and his family and his property. The idea behind Voluntucky is to create hope. And 100 years from now, you will be dead. And you can be dead having given liberty a chance, or you can be dead having let tyranny go unanswered. But either way, you will be dead. Now you can take that information in and conclude that nothing matters anyway, so there's no point. Or you can take that information in and say, God damn it, I don't know if I'll win or lose. But I know if there's even the faintest possibility that I could win, then I'm going to take the chance. I've said before there are two ways to have peace. Either no one is violating anyone else's property, so there's nothing to fight about, or someone is violating someone else's property, and they just let it happen, do nothing. They don't fight back. If we give this a shot, and they are willing to stand proudly at their podium and declare out loud to the world that they can't let us do this because they own us, because we are their property, and we will do as we are told. And so they send people in to attack us, to force us back under their control. Then guess what? We are still in the same world we were in before. When the smoke settles, the only peace that will exist is due to the fact that no one fights back. But at least we will know that it's not because we chose not to fight back. It's because we didn't have the ability to win the fight. I don't want a fight. I want to be left alone to live my life any way I choose so long as I never impose upon anyone else's right to do the same. I want the first type of peace where no one is violating anyone else's property rights. But the opportunity to do that is not on an increasing trend. It is on a decreasing trend. And it's on a decreasing trend because 100 years ago when government decided they were the only ones who had the right to create money no one got together and told them to go fuck themselves. And when they decided they have the right to confiscate your income, no one got together and told them to go fuck themselves. And when they decided they have the right to tell you what you can or cannot put in your own body, no one got together and told them to go fuck themselves. They petitioned tyrants for a redress of grievance. And it didn't work. I didn't plan to go on this rant today. I wanted to just talk about clear definitions of aggression and what constitutes violations of the NAP, but it's important that anyone who takes part in this project understand what is being asked of them. We can fight hard for a little while and possibly succeed, or we can fight a little every day for the rest of our lives and be guaranteed to die with less freedom than we were born with.
While it's important to understand the risk involved, I do truly believe that the best outcome is also the most likely. I believe they are more likely to let us be than to risk disrupting the illusion of the masses. The way we get there, the way we give ourselves the best chance possible is to only fight battles that we have a real chance of of winning. And until that trigger of 10,000 members is reached, we have to fight those battles within the system. After that trigger happens, then we do things our own way because we can afford to take the risk because we could win. I'm making no claims at all about knowing the best possible way to do everything without government. But you don't have to know how everything should be done in order to know how things definitely should not be done. And the way things are done right now, through violence and the threat of violence, should absolutely not be done. We can figure the rest out. You'll hear me say a million times, the free market works every time you use it. We will find much better ways to do things and then we will find even better ways to replace those ways and better ways to replace those ways. I don't think most people can really even wrap their heads around the exponential growth that will take place and the pace at which we can advance once the burdens of government are gone that just suck our lifeblood and our productivity out of us in ways that we don't even see anymore or realize because we've dealt with them for so long that we've just learned to adapt to them. It'll be like having carried a rucksack every day, every month, every year of your life, and every year they add just a little more weight to it and just a little more weight to it. Is he complaining yet? Yeah, a little bit. He's over it now. You always get used to those tiny little impositions and you never notice how much they add up incrementally. That weight is the burden that is put on you to use your productivity to create things not for your benefit, but for the benefit of elitist thugs and tyrants who are a billion times worse than that welfare mom who won't stop making people who gets under your skin so bad ever thought of being. And when we start taking weight out of that rucksack, one brick at a time, and each time you're able to go just a little bit faster, just a little bit further, and pretty soon you're twice as productive as you were and burning half the energy to make the same amount of things happen. And then you realize that we're just getting started. And one day you look up and it's like you've lost a hundred pounds over the past year and the level of freedom you will experience is like nothing most people could even imagine. They say money can't buy happiness. Let me tell you something. That's something a poor person made up so they don't feel so bad about being poor. Money creates options. And freedom is defined by how many options you have. Freedom is not another word for nothing left to lose. Freedom is the ability to lose and recover from your losses because you have plenty left that you didn't have to put on the table to risk. Okay, I could ramble on all day here. I need to wrap it up. If you are willing to move to Pulaski County, Kentucky, come on down. If you meet the the qualifications of being a Voluntucky community member, then you will receive 10,000 coins of our cryptocurrency as soon as it exists. If you're not ready to make the move yet, then you can still help out by contributing for the purpose of real estate acquisition. 
when there's enough money in the kitty to pay cash for some real estate that can be rented out, then our local cryptocurrency that I will give you for free for moving here will be accepted as rent. If the community charter isn't up on the website yet, it will be very soon. Look it over. If it sounds like the world you want to live in, put your name on that bitch and get down here. As always, keep your constructive ideas coming and keep your unconstructive ideas to your damn self. Thanks for listening to Episode 5 of Voluntucky, the podcast that is all about creating a voluntarist world in Kentucky. I am Matt Withrow, and we'll talk to you again real soon. Thank you.